0: Welcome to The Audible, presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined, as always, by Bruce Feldman. Week one, almost in the books. As of this recording, we've got one more game left. Notre Dame-Louisville. In terms of the polls, there hasn't been much that would shake up the next top 25, but I do feel like this has been an extremely eventful several days.
1: Okay, Stu. So we saw each other a little bit on Saturday. You were at the game I was doing at Stanford, Northwestern at Stanford. I'll be honest, I was tied up for a good six hours. I was down the field. So in full disclosure, at one point you texted me late in, a, in my game and basically said, Tennessee is about to lose to Georgia State, which I was
0: shocked you, to hear that you didn't believe and it at first I
1: didn't and I just immediately thought back I have a good friend who she went to Tennessee and is, and is a diehard Bulls fan. I was like oh my god she must be apoplectic at this because who would think that they could lose to a 2-10 and 10 Sunbelt team but before we get into that so I'm going to ask you because you, you had a better gauge on everything that was going on in real time Saturday than I did what was your biggest takeaway from week one just in terms of what happened
0: on the field I hate to keep going back to this point because I mentioned it last week, but there were a lot of freshman quarterbacks going out there, and they almost all of them did really well. We saw Sam Howell at North Carolina lead a comeback win. We saw Bo Nix at Auburn lead a comeback win. I think we saw three freshmen lead double-digit rallies. Boise State would be the other one. So it's just it's reality now. That these are the guys who are these guys are just ready to play, and you know I think it helped add to the drama a little bit. Uh, you know North Carolina South Carolina it's not a huge it was a double digit upset I mean it's not a huge upset like Georgia State but fairly significant and the freshman was at the center of it in fact and he's going against a four-year starter in Jake Bentley but you know back to your what you were talking about originally that Tennessee Georgia State thing is one of the more crazier upsets I can remember I mean it's not Appalachian State Michigan by any means but all the anticipation around Tennessee and Jeremy Pruitt's second season and how much better are they going to be? And we're not talking about losing to...
1: This is losing to, like, when a couple of years ago Butch Jones's team Really struggle with Appalachian State, but that was Appalachian State that was a very solid,
0: respectable team. Yeah.
1: They weren't, this wasn't when they were like a lower division team. They were good with a bunch of NFL guys on it. But this Georgia State team, they only won two games last year. Here's the part that jumped out at me after kind of trying to make sense of it the fact that Tennessee got outrushed by Georgia State 213 to 93. Now, I know they were down, but keep in mind, Georgia State finished seventh in rushing in the Sun Belt last year. It's just kind of mind-boggling that they could get kind of pushed around like that Georgia State 10 for 17 on third downs I know Tennessee turned the ball over look I don't it's one week we can overreact everybody overreacts in college football after week one how much if at all does this change your confidence level of the job Jeremy Pruitt will get done in Knoxville
0: well first of all usually when there are upsets like these you know we keep referring to them as a two and ten team I think this is probably a sign that Georgia State's going to be a lot better than that this year. I can't say I follow Georgia State closely enough to tell you why that would be. I know they changed offensive coordinators, but still, there's no excuse for that. And, you know, the final score was 38-30, but that's just because Tennessee tacked a touchdown on at the end. They got blown off the field. I'll be honest, I've been skeptical of Jeremy Pruitt from day one, but I've been trying to be cautious about that, you know, because first of all, he walked into a situation where the cupboard was completely bare, so I had no expectations for last season that he would do anything. And it's not like I expected them to be a 10-2 and team this year by any means. I thought getting to a bowl game would be, you know, a good goal for this season. But it's no secret. That was a really, really messed up coaching search in which Jeremy Pruitt was the eighth or ninth person that they talked to before finally getting a coach. And I think the reasoning was mostly, well, Kirby Smart was a Nick aven defensive coordinator. Look how that's working for Georgia. So let's go get the next guy. And I'm sure they'll get better. But how do you, if you're a Tennessee fan, after all they've been through in the last decade, how do you still have hope after that? How do you, how do you think, oh, we're going to turn around and, and, and win several games in the SEC this year? If nothing else, like you said, Georgia State ran the ball down their throat. Defensive line was their big concern coming to the season. You couldn't ask for a worse first game from their defensive line, and that's a defensive line that's eventually going to have to play Alabama and, and Georgia. And some other really good teams.
1: I mean, look, I don't think anybody, I don't think any realistic Tennessee fan thought they were going to win more than seven games this year. And so, you know, Alabama, no. I think all you want to do is be kind of competitive with them at this stage. I think where it's a question, where, where it stings is they've gotten a little bit of traction recruiting. They recruited a couple of big time offensive linemen last year, got a big time linebacker in there, but I just think it's harder to push to sell. When you're losing this kind of game, I mean, our colleague David Oven wrote this and it just kind of sunk in as horrible as Derek Dooley was as a coach at Tennessee, as chaotic as it was with Lane Kiffin, everything that when it fell apart at Bush Jones at the end and and his tenure there, none of those guys ever lost to a team remotely like this. And so that's why I just think it's like, woo, it's I don't want to call it a crusher because I just don't think you can do that to a guy and it's. 13th game in the program, but I do think it is one where it's going to sting a while, and now look, if they go out and blow out BYU, now BYU just got thumped by Utah, it's not like they would be beating Utah, but at least that would be a positive sign, and if they can get a little bit of momentum, people will move on. I mean, there's there's been good teams. Mike Leach, the guy who they could have had as the head coach instead of Jeremy Pruitt, he's lost FCS teams at the beginning of a season, and gone on to have pretty good seasons. The only thing is, Mike Leach has got a lot more, is a much more established commodity and proven winner, and the guy who right now is coaching Tennessee is still really in the infancy stages of his coaching career.
0: I guess the silver lining for Tennessee is that the SEC East outside of Georgia did not look much better on opening weekend. Like we said, South Carolina losing to UNC, who themselves, UNC, two-win team last season, Missouri Goes on the road and loses handily to Wyoming. I'm kicking myself because that's a game that when I saw it on the schedule over the summer, I thought, there's a, there's an upset potential. What, what a crazy place for Missouri to be go, going and playing a road game. And then come upset special time this week, I went with um, James Madison, West Virginia instead. That did not come through. But uh, yeah, I mean, where do you stand on the... Uh, this was a good Twitter debate over the last 24 hours. People like myself, Scott Van Pelt, others noted... Three SEC double-digit favorites lost. Four SEC teams lost non-conference games. Only the Pac-12 has as many so far uh, losses, uh, Power 5 losses to non-conference teams. But on the flip side of that, they have six ranked teams, and they all won, almost all of them handily. The only close game was Auburn, and Auburn comes back and gets the win over Oregon. So what did we learn about the SEC in Week 1?
1: I think we learned that the bottom half of that I think we learned basically everybody except for the powerhouse programs is pretty shaky. Look, I'm not surprised that Ole Miss lost to Memphis. I'm not shocked that South Carolina lost to North Carolina. Look, I I have South Carolina not even going to a bowl this year and just looking at their schedule. And I didn't think they'd lose this game, but it doesn't surprise me that they did. The one that just really stunned me is obviously Tennessee, Uh, Missouri. That's a tough, that's a, it's a tricky road trip. I mean, they should still win that game. But there was an interesting interesting stat that David Paschal – I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. He's the uh, – he, he's a sports writer for the free press in Chattanooga. The SEC had just two non-conference losses to unranked teams throughout the entire 2018 regular season. They suffered four such setbacks on Saturday. That's pretty – that's a pretty jarring day. I mean – it, I, I don't think the SEC's reputation is going to get tor- torpedoed by you know, a pretty big dud of a day because ultimately, if Alabama is still a, a playoff-caliber team and if Georgia is still a playoff-caliber team and if next week LSU goes to Texas and beats Texas, this, these other results really don't matter for the, much for the credibility of the conference because if you're strong at the top that's what drives the boat. That's the reality. No yeah. one cares about parity, or else we'd be talking up some other leagues.
0: Yeah, that, that's all anybody notices. Yeah, I, I think if LSU doesn't beat Texas, then this becomes more of a real discussion because that's one of your supposed top contenders. We'll see how Texas AM does against Clemson. But probably for the most part, you know, I mean, Alabama did what it was supposed to do against Duke, uh, LSU did what it was supposed to do against Georgia Southern. You know, Obviously, it was a conference game, but Georgia won pretty handily against Vanderbilt. Back to the podcast in a second. But first, Bruce, you know, this weekend was the start of college football season. Next weekend is the start of NFL season, and you know what that means. Fantasy football? Fantasy football, baby. It's time to go on draft and try to win $3.5 million in real money. Can you believe that much is up at stake? $3.5 million? Whoa. It's the best ball championship on draft. Now, the cool thing about draft, if you've gone on the app, is that, you know, I've had a lot of friends right now who are doing these really time-consuming fantasy football drafts where they're waiting on other people. That is not what you do here. It's season-long, but with no management. You just set it and forget it. Once you're done drafting, that's it. No trades, no waiver wire. You don't even have to set your lineup. It'll set the lineup for you, get the best players automatically started, and you'll get the best score every week there's no salary caps you play in a real live snake draft just like you play with your friends in a season-long league but in this case a new league starts every couple minutes and you can just join one whenever you want to your draft so for a limited time only get free entry into the best ball championship when you make your first deposit but you have to use our promo code audible that's right a free shot at one million dollars just by using promo code audible when you make your first deposit on draft just search draft in the app store Or go to Draft.com and come play free with promo code Audible. Turning our attention, though, to a former SEC quarterback. We are recording this not long after Jalen Hurts made his long-awaited Oklahoma debut. And I think it's interesting. This was maybe the most talked-about transfer of the entire offseason. I kept saying how surreal it was going to be to see him play for Oklahoma. And I think I got asked on a million radio interviews, Hume. How do you think he'll do at Oklahoma Uh, Do you think he fits that offense? And I'd say, well, I definitely think he fits that offense. I don't expect him to be Kyler Murray or Baker Mayfield, but he's better than people give him credit for. Well, in his debut at Oklahoma against Houston, Jalen Hurts, 20 of 23 for 332 yards and three touchdowns, 16 rushes for 176 yards and three touchdowns. Here's your crazy stat of the day, courtesy of ESPN Stats and Info. Only two players in the last 15 seasons have 300-plus pass yards, three passing touchdowns, 150-plus rushing yards, and three rushing touchdowns in a single game. Jalen Hurts and Johnny, Johnny Winslow.
1: Yeah, I kind of figured it was going to be Johnny.
0: It, it blew uh, me away. I, 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 didn't expect, you know, I didn't expect to see that. That was, you know, I don't care how bad Houston's defense is. That was something. You don't at all care about how bad Houston's defense is? Well, I, I care. I acknowledge that its defense is bad. But generally speaking, if you can do that against anybody, you know he, that means he's gonna probably he's probably gonna have a pretty good season. Uh, he's not gonna do that every week, but as we know, the uh, the a Big Twelve is not stacked with Alabama type defenses. So to me, it was just another example of how great a coach Lincoln Riley is, how great an offensive coach he is. Put in a new quarterback tailored to his strengths, and boom, look what you have. And I guess the most surprising part is how much a focal point of the offense he was kennedy brooks really good running back as we know four carries cd lamb two catches for 46 yards he just spread it around and then obviously and you don't know on those rpos how much it was by design or how much it wasn't but he ran 16 times 176 yards he had uh it was almost like welcome back jalen hurts we hadn't seen him in two years for the most part you forget like oh yeah he's a really good runner
1: Right. Now, look, he was the SEC Offensive Player of the Year as a true freshman. I mean, it's not like he w- You know, I, I saw the interview that Holly Rowe did with Kyler Murray, probably in like the first quarter. And Kyler made a good point, And it's one that I think is a, probably a little bit lost on a lot of people. He's like, he's like, it's different for it was different for a Kyler. Now, Baker was a little more like Jalen Hurts in this regard. I mean, Jalen Hurts was an established star player. And then he got to Oklahoma. Kyler really didn't do anything at, at A&M until he got there and just blew up. So, I, again, I, I think – I don't think it was anything surprising what, what he did today. Now, I think it would be I, – honestly, I think it would have been surprising if he did this to TCU or Iowa State. You know, I just remember we did a, a Houston-Texas Houston, Tech game last year, and Houston's defense was horrific. So, I don't, you know, and they, and they were horrific, and they had Ed Oliver.
0: They, they gave it. up 70 points to Army in the bowl game, so I'm not under any delusion that was a good defense. Speaking of defenses, though, you know Jalen Hurts going to get all the headlines here, but as we know, the other very important storyline for Oklahoma is what kind of impact can Alex Grinch have as a defensive coordinator. Final score was 49-31. Take that for what it's worth. I thought their defense looked much different for the first three quarters. Once the game was out of hand, Houston scored some more at the end, but. D.R. King is a really good quarterback, Houston's quarterback, and he finished 14 of 27 for 167 yards. He got sacked. Now, he uh, did have over 100
1: yards rushing, but yeah, he is he's a really good quarterback. Stevenson's a very dangerous receiver, and Dana Holgerson's a really good offensive coach. You know, I, I think that this is to me, the biggest key with them was they did not give up a ton of huge plays, which they did. They, they were in the hundreds last year in most plays over 40 yards given up. And on Sunday night, they didn't give up a play longer than 30 yards against a team that is a big play offense. So I, I don't think that's in, insignificant to me. Again, they weren't lights out on defense. They gave up 31 points. But it's relative here, whereas Houston's a a pretty dangerous offensive team. They're really bad on defense. I'm not saying what what Jalen Hurts did, you know, he was terrific tonight. But I think what the defense did was at least encouraging. They're going to have to get better, but at least it was better than what they've been.
0: They just looked more loose, more aggressive. I think in the Mike Stoops' latter years, a frequent criticism of them was that they were tentative because they were kind of playing read-and-react defense. And a lot of these kind of high-powered offenses, you just don't have time to do that. you got to come after them, which they did. And so three sacks. Kenneth Murray, he was a really good defensive player last year as well. And, you know, a potential to be all-conference, possibly all-American. 13 tackles, two-and-a-half tackles for loss, pass breakup, quarterback hurry. So Todd Blackledge, I think around sometime in the second quarter, said, based on what he was seeing at that point from Jalen Hurts in the defense, this Oklahoma team... He went there. So this Oklahoma team has more of a chance to win the national championship than the last two did. Agree or disagree?
1: I'm glad you're going to ask that. I'm not ready to go that
0: far right now. Here I am. I've
1: been predicting Texas to win the Big 12, and I'm not getting off that at this point. Obviously, if Texas loses next week, I will probably have to reassess that. But I don't know. As impressive as the offense was, I think it's still week one. I don't want to go overboard with it. Obviously, we're all playing hunches at this point. I like the, I think the Alex Grinch hire was, and I've said this multiple times, was a, was a terrific addition. I just ultimately think that the bar, they have been so, so dangerous on offense, and I get it. I've heard from people who have been around that program for a long time. They say this is probably the best collection of, of balance of skill guys that they've had in a long time. I still am not ready to say that I, I think they have a better chance to win in the playoff now than they, than they did two years ago. How do you feel about it?
0: Also, it's, yeah, I mean, I'm with you. It's week one. Let's not make any, (laughs) I mean, if we don't have any sort of overreactions, we won't have much of a podcast here, right? We got to say something, but, you know, I'm not quite ready to go there, but I do have Oklahoma in the playoff, and it was the one I was least confident in picking, because I'm like, okay, I'm putting a lot of faith in Jalen Hurts, and I'm putting a lot of faith in Alex Grinch, so I guess all I would say is, one week in, I'm feeling a little bit validated, but I'm not naive enough to think that you know that that's how it's going to be all season so like you said encouraging start um let's see how texas looks next week against lsu iowa state the team that's picked third in the big 12 had a had an ominous uh opener having to go to multiple overtimes to beat northern iowa you know who looked really good though oklahoma state i didn't get a
1: chance we had uh we were uh, that was a big travel day for us were scrambling. i didn't get a chance to see any of that game
0: they go to Corvallis and granted Oregon State's been awful lately but and Chuba ran wild Chuba ran wild we knew he would be a breakout player and after I mean Mike Gundy made it seem all offseason like he didn't know who the quarterback was going to be they might both play the game Uh, it was definitely Spencer Sanders and he looked really good so uh, again Oregon State not the best barometer but you know road trip some other teams did not do so well traveling out west so Give him credit for that. You know, the Pac-12 after dark game uh, turned out to be fairly eventful. USC beats Fresno State but loses JT Daniels. So it was a really rough day. I mean, you and I were at a game where two quarterbacks got hurt. And then JT Daniels, as soon as it happened, as soon as he took that that sack, you knew he was hurt. It was just how hurt was he going to be. And it's the worst, ACL and meniscus tear. I guess it snuck up on me a little bit what the USC backup quarterback situation has turned into.
1: So Keith Maslovis, he was a uh, recruit from the old, say old staff, but like the old quarterback coach who is now Clay Helton's younger brother's uh, offensive coordinator at Western Kentucky, got him at Arizona. I think he was a three-star recruit at that point and not a huge guy. Probably, I would say maybe 6'1", 200 pounds. Maybe he's gotten a little
0: bigger than that now. I think uh, 200 pounds would probably be stretching it. Yeah. He, uh, he was tr- helped coached by Kurt Warner, the yep.
1: arena ball slash NFL legend quarterback. That's good pedigree to have. And just from talking to Graham Harrell a little bit in the spring, they really liked him when they got there. They were very impressed. And certainly it's a new, it was a new system to grasp, and so somewhat him coming in fresh where the other guys had some other stuff to maybe unlearn and were a little more clouded. It seemed like he picked up a lot of ground on those other guys and, Obviously, he did because when it was announced a couple of weeks ago, and this wasn't a surprise that JT Daniels had been, it was going to be the starter. I don't really think it was as much of a quarterback battle overall mm-hmm. anyway. But he was the number two. A lot of people around the USC program had thought it was going to be Jack Sears because he'd played well in the game he had against Arizona State when he started. But Jack Sears, practice wise, hadn't really impressed a lot of people, I'm told. So we'll see what's going to happen. I'll I'll say this, you're a true freshman quarterback and that's going to be hard. You're going to hear about whether you can block it out or not. Your head coach is on the hottest seat in the country, which is true. uh, The hottest seat of any college football coach, but he has a terrific collection of receivers. And at least that's a good starting point. I think Graham Harrell is going to be really good with him as far as helping him get settled in, but they're in the deep end of the pool right out of the gate. I mean, this isn't a great Stanford team, but it's a pretty good Stanford team. I was impressed by what I saw you know, from the field the other day, and then the schedule just gets harder and harder for the next, next, uh, next six weeks or so.
0: Yeah, well, I guess we can talk a little bit about that game we were at. It was really hot, and it was really ugly. Uh, there were a lot of fumbles and a lot of penalties and a lot of uh, poor quarterback play from uh, my alma mater. But uh, the thing that impressed me, or I guess – I don't know if it impressed, but surprised me was Stanford, you know, had a real problem running the ball last year. And that was with Bryce Love. Granted, Bryce Love was injured pretty much the whole time. And so you go into this year, and they're th- they're going to rely on this trio of, of running backs who've been around for a long time, including Cam Scarlett, but have never really stood out. It's all been potential.
1: And one of the uh, running backs who was in that group what, did, could, was injured and wasn't going to play. So that really put more of the brunt on, on uh, Scarlet, And as the game wore on, I felt like you kept on noticing him because, honestly, I think the feel for a lot of people around the conference was right now they went from having two special backs to, relatively speaking, a- average backs. Right. And as you watch, Northwestern is regarded as a very physical, tough, tackling team and really good on defense, especially with, with those linebackers. And they felt really good. You know, we had our uh, TV meetings, and they talked up how good they thought the secondary was going to be. There were a ton of missed tackles, so much so that at, at the start of the third quarter, when I spoke to Pat Fitzgerald, I said, what kind of a, a defensive adjustments are you, do you need to make? He goes, we need to tackle. We're not tackling. We're taking bad angles. You could tell. I mean, obviously, he was a great college linebacker there. It was not sitting well. And right out of the gate, as soon as, as, soon as Northwestern was back on defense— there was a pass in the flat, another missed tackle, and then like two plays later, another missed tackle. It's just, I think it's one of those things where it just kind of spills out. And you see that you see Scarlet gain in confidence. And look, it wasn't a, a wow performance, but I thought when KJ Costello was healthy before he was knocked out of the game, he was pretty sharp. And I thought there were moments, look, Davis Mills is really talented. He wowed both me and Brock Heward when we were out at Stanford practice a week ago. And he looked like like he he could step in and be terrific. Now, we'll see if he's got to be the guy. What did you think of Hunter Johnson? Because I know a lot of Northwestern people saw, hey, he was a five-star guy and had sky-high expectations. What did you make of his debut?
0: It was a rough debut, to say the least. My thing with Hunter Johnson was when everybody would say, oh, my gosh, Northwestern signed a five-star quarterback. I'm like, well, even if he is really good – He's not going to be throwing to T. Higgins and Amari Rodgers anymore, right? He's Hunter Renfro. You know, Northwestern, not exactly brimming with talent at the receiver position.
1: They do have, a, Ben Stronick's a really good receiver. He's, he's like, their,
0: really their only one right now. But that wasn't it. He just seemed really slow to process things and not comfortable at all. I thought when T.J. Green came in, uh, before he got hurt. Before they him. got a little spark. They got a little spark, but he he was missing open receivers. But he at least seemed like he could process things more quickly and scan the field.
1: Well, he is a, he is a fifth year senior with five years in the offense. I think that that definitely helped. Look, I'll, I'll I, this is not a shocker, but when you watch the two of them warm up, there's definitely it's a noticeable difference in the ball speed coming out of Hunter's hands as opposed to TJ. But then when you watched it play, you just had one guy who just did not seem very comfortable did not seem that engaged and especially this is and this is one of the things that was an emphasis for us in our broadcast was keep an eye on the dynamic of of how hunter johnson's managing on the sideline and he throws a pick on the first drive and tj green son of trent green you know he he's first one to go over and console him and then Fitz talks to him and then T.J. Green is kind of you can see the hand gestures of talking about the routes and what he saw. And then when T.J. Green got hurt and left the stadium or left the field, it was almost like there was no more security blanket there. He just it was interesting to observe young quarterback on the road against in a game he knew what you knew would be tight. And he just didn't look very comfortable, as you said, whereas we had a game a couple of nights earlier, our game at Minnesota, where there was an FCS opponent, South Dakota State, starting a retro freshman quarterback, Jabori Gibbs. And Jabori Gibbs actually looked very comfortable and had a lot of presence to him on the sideline. and I kind of had that fresh in my head of here's a guy who's quickly gaining command of his team, whereas in the other case, you felt like you had a really young quarterback who just just really looked like he was not ready.
0: They also It was a bad injury game. They also lost Isaiah Bowser, their top running back. uh, Severity unknown. The injury, though, yes. Yeah, not good. Stanford, KJ Costello gets knocked out right before the half on a really weird play where, you know, it was one of those bang-bang plays, but the Northwestern defender definitely shouldn't have done what he did, which was as Costello's falling to the ground, he kind of gives him a forearm to the face. So it seemed like pretty obvious targeting. They did throw a flag, but it wasn't for targeting. It was for a late hit, which didn't. I mean, that happened rather quickly to be considered a late hit. But because it wasn't targeting, he wasn't ejected. But yeah, Costello went out with a head injury.
1: And the replay official, who I'll have a little anecdote about later on in this podcast, by the way. What are you saving it for? I don't know if I'm saving for anything, but I'll tell you later. Maybe maybe it'll make the podcast. Maybe it won't. The source of frustration, I guess, had ruled that he did not think it was that there was intent to drive for it. It was almost coincidental, if not if not in that
0: regard. If it's coincidental, then how can it be a late hit? Because I'm talking
1: about the forearm to the head coming okay. up. There's three criteria, and I apparently to have a to have it ruled in that case, it has to meet all three. And it sounded like it only met two of the three. That was my understanding from the field. David Shaw, when I talked to him, like about a minute later after it happened, because it happened right before the halftime, was not obviously happy. But he was like, "I don't make the call," and just kind of let's focus on let's move it on to the next play, which is probably what you got to do when you are. I don't really understand how. Down.
0: Yeah, I don't understand how those coaches can really register any of those. I mean, they're always you know getting mad about penalties, but you know how it is down on the field. Like that stuff happens so fast. There is no way you could know in real time. And then yeah, they play it up on the video board, but you're also trying to figure out what the next call is gonna be and all these other things. So you know Well, I, I actually so I'm listening to obviously
1: the broadcast and I Dean Blandino's talking to Joe Davis and Brock Hewer, and I hear he's our rules expert, and he along with Mike Pereira. And so I'm hearing what he's saying. I don't have I have the re- same benefit of replay that the people in the stands have, maybe that you don't have, because you have the broadcast you can see. I'm only looking at it on the Jumbotron. And but I, I said to, to Shaw what I'd heard Blandino say. You could tell he was like, all right, I don't know if I want to get into this right now. And at the end, I said, is there any recourse? And he was like, no, we got to just play the next play. And at that point, that's the recourse. Because you're starting quarterbacks down. You're going to play a quarterback who's had three knee injuries, and it's go time for him. And you know it's a tight game. So I thought, you know, look, you're dealing with a, a coach, a head coach, who's probably one of the more cool customers in his profession, and that was evident in that moment right there.
0: So we've gone 30 minutes without talking about the biggest game of the night and, and frankly, the best game of the night, Auburn-Oregon. Oregon Oregon really seemed in control of this game for most of the game. They led all the way up until the last touchdown. And, you know, I kept thinking, oh, my gosh, this is going to be really big for the Pac-12. Justin Herbert's going to finally have his signature win. And then it just... They stops. They stopped scoring. They stopped really like being aggressive on offense. Auburn kind of chipped away, chipped away, and then Gus Malzahn went for it at the end. You know that you everybody watching, including Chris Fowler, assumed they were setting up for the field goal, and then Bo Nix unleashes that dart to the end zone to Seth Williams, 26 yard touchdown, crushing triumphant win for Auburn, crushing defeat for Oregon. Felt a little bit like. Some of those Auburn seasons in the past where they would pull it, you know. They, 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 you, as we know, Auburn swings wildly from one season to the next. It seems like they either have a season full of endings like that or a season where they have a bunch of embarrassing losses. So I wonder if this one was a sign of, that this is going to be one of the good seasons. What
1: I thought, I, I agree with you. It looked like Oregon took its foot off the gas. And I think they looked really crisp when they were being aggressive in the first half. And then what I wondered, now what I wanted to see from that, from the, the uh, broadcast was show me what the, what the passing chart looks like for Justin Herbert in this. Cause I felt like there were a, a, a bunch of passes to Jalen red underneath. And it felt like they, they were not taking shots anywhere near downfield or in the middle of the field. And it just looked like they got really boxed in and started to get l- tighter and tighter and Auburn, look, they have a really good defense. They have a terrific defensive line and good people on the back end, too. And I don't think Oregon, where they're good, I don't think I, I don't think they have a real collection of, of elite receivers right now. I mean, whatever they had is a little banged up. And I think that kind of showed. I thought Oregon certainly looked like they belonged. But I'll ask you this. So what is your take on Justin Herbert at this point? Are you buying him
0: or? I'm I'm not. I keep waiting. I keep waiting for that moment. I think that the best I've seen him was in the Stanford game last year where he had this Aaron Rodgers-like streak of completions going at one point and then it went to overtime and they lost. You had him in the bowl game last year. It was a 7-6 to six game. They had that really odd blowout loss at Arizona last year. He's had his moments, and and he, here's what I think happened. He when he when they were um, you know the disastrous Mark Helfrich's last season when the rails were coming off, he came in and and immediately provided a spark and looked so much better than what they had, and that just kind of began the legend of Justin Herbert, and I just feel like it got a little bit out of control. I'm not saying he's a he's bad by any means. I think he could be he could be an NFL quarterback, but just the hype around him. Has been speeding past where he's actually at as a quarterback. Does that make sense? It does. I think, and
1: I don't. Again, I don't want to drift into the overreactions part a little bit, but there is a, there, there is some of it. And he's played a lot of football now. Where a, a, this, is, this is a word I heard like year, four years ago from a quarterback coach, toolsy. And sometimes that can be great in getting guys four and five stars. And obviously, Justin wasn't that coming out of high school, but where you have a big, big, strong arm, and you're athletic, and you can run well, and you do a lot of stuff that looks really good in drills and that kind of thing. And you know who was that way was Blaine Gabbert. Blaine Gabbert was, was phenomenal at the OTAs and all that stuff, and then when the games happened, wasn't that great. And I'm not saying that, look, I know, I know we've had some discussions in the past about Josh Allen from Wyoming wh- who had a cannon for an arm and is athletic and can run. And can do a lot of good things, but you still wonder if it's all going to translate to being a really successful NFL quarterback. And I I don't know if Justin Herbert is going to be that way, because he's he's a really really you know bright kid, a humble kid. All these things are positive. Maybe he just doesn't have good enough receivers around him. Maybe that limits the play calling of what Marcus Arroyo's do, you know got to work with there. I think there's a lot of pieces in this that we don't. Quite no. And again, there's plenty of football to be played and he's going to have a bunch more big games. And again, I think he's a really good quarterback. The question is, if we're talking about first pick in the draft, you know, as some people have, you know, as some of the hype has led to, you know, you got to see more than that in these kinds of settings. I mean, for for two quarters, I thought he looked like that guy. And then for the last two quarters, he looked it looked a lot like it did. You know, in the Michigan State game last year, and good Michigan, they, you know, get like or like Auburn. Michigan State had a really good defense, but I just think sometimes if you are talking about a guy who's going to be a you know a top player, they got to shine on that stage for four quarters.
0: I wonder if it lines up at all with uh, Auburn has a really good defensive line, Oregon has a really good offensive line, and there was a stat toward the end of the first half that Justin Herbert had had attempted sixteen passes, and they'd only gotten pressure on him on two. I don't know if that flipped a little bit in the second half. I never saw any sort of follow up stat on that. It was a real testament to Oregon's offensive line, to say the least. But, you know, everybody wants to project him as an NFL pick. I think first things first, can he lead? Do we have enough confidence in him that he can lead Oregon to a Pac 12 championship? Because, gotta tell you, Utah looked really good against BYU on Thursday night. Washington was playing Eastern Washington, but gonna be say what you want about the Pac 12. I think it's gonna be a really tough race. I think those three teams. Will be the uh, the main contenders. Maybe Stanford can get into it. I always overlook Washington State. Maybe they can get into it as well. But expectations are high at Oregon right now, in part because of what Mario Cristobal is doing in recruiting. But we have he still needs that signature win. He needs to get them in contention first on the field.
1: So, where do you feel about them? Do you? I mean, I know you had some pretty high expectations. Are you off the bandwagon from them?
0: No, the... oh, I mean this was a this was a game either team could have won. Uh, they lost with nine seconds left. I you got to try to keep it in perspective. I know that can be tough sometimes. You know, Auburn has really good players. They had a disappointing season last year. It's just you know, can they shake it off and can they uh can they be more consistent once they get into the pac twelve season? You know, if I'm taking if I'm picking it based on the coaches, and you know, I like Mario. He just hasn't been doing it very long yet. If I'm picking on based on the coaches, right, I'm gonna ride Chris Peterson and Kyle Whittingham, but. That doesn't mean Cristobal can't break through and do it on his own. Uh, I agree with everything you just said. Stu, so you know what I did notice when I got back to my hotel
1: room Saturday night? A video that I just kind of couldn't stop watching. I must have watched it like six times. And as of the postgame celebration of Mac Brown dancing in the locker room. Few things are sweeter than seeing older coaches dancing in the locker room.
0: It's it never like, gets it's, old. It's like wedding videos. Well, I got to give Matt credit because I was skeptical of the hire and I'm not going to go and say he's going to be a great hire based off of this one game, but definitely a, a I'm, sorry, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have doubted you kind of moment because you know, they're coming off two and 10. I think they may have been one and 11 the year before that. That was a big win for them.
1: It was, especially, I don't call it a rivalry game, but South Carolina SEC team for him to go in there and win that. As you said, Sam Howell, i you know, I'm a big uh, believer in him after seeing him summon his high school career. I think he's got really good staff around him. Jay Bateman, the coordinator on the defensive side, came from Army. He does a really good job. I think the Longo is going to be a good fit there. He's an air raid disciple. I think that's all positive. I'm not ready to say North Carolina is going to be a 7- or 8-win team. Are you?
0: I don't know. I don't know what to make yet because South Carolina, frankly, could turn out to be awful. You just don't know. But they definitely looked... I just think things got away from Larry Fedora those last two years. They just... It seemed like a lost cause. So, you know, that scene in the locker room, I think, showed a team that believes in their coach. And you're absolutely right about... That's really the difference between the Mac Brown hire and the Les Miles hire. Mac Brown immediately went out and put together a really good staff. You know, maybe it's easier to do that year at C than it is at Kansas. So that that gives me a little bit more faith in him. You know, when you first said... I couldn't stop watching this video. I thought you were going to be talking about a different video. (laughs) Oh, I
1: think I know what you're talking
0: about. The one that really... We've gone this long. We haven't actually talked about the actual biggest story in college football on Saturday, you know? I
1: don't think it's the biggest story. It's the most bizarre
0: story. Remember, it was just a week ago that I I had some fun on Twitter with in the the, um, wake of the Andrew Luck retirement. There were some really bizarre takes on Twitter on that one, and somebody claimed it was the most bizarre sports news in the last 20 years. Which led me down a, a, a long, a deep, deep well of... Do you have a list for me that you've compiled? Well, I could go back and find all the tweets. I was having fun that day. I was like, yeah, it could be that. Or, you know, remember the time Arkansas's football coach put her put his mistress on the payroll and people only found out because he got in a motorcycle accident with her? You know, that's bizarre. I me- I mentioned Josh Shaw. Remember, <coughs> remember the Josh Shaw story? <laughs>
1: Oh, I do remember the Josh Shaw story, the USC,
0: yeah. And, of course, the most bizarre story of all, Manti Teo and Lene Kakua. Like, that's bizarre. But you know what ranks right up there with all of those? Hugh Freeze coaching a game from his hospital bed, Liberty against Syracuse. And it was one of those things where people covering the game were tweeting out these pictures or videos very earnestly because, you know, they're on the scene, this is their job. Before we get into the story more, because, you know, it's the kind of story that that draws sarcasm. But it starts with the fact that this is a Chris Lowe story from August 17th with the headline, Freeze had potentially life-threatening infection. Hugh Freeze is recovering from surgery underwent Friday at the University of Virginia Medical Center after potentially life-threatening strand of staph infection entered his bloodstream and complicated was already severe pain he was experiencing from a herniated disc in his back. So it starts with that. That was August seventeenth. He's been away from the team for the most part since then. But in the last week, he kept talking. They kept talking about they were going to find a way for him to coach the game. They concocted some way for him to be there, where he was up in the press box and laying on a hospital bed. He gave the pregame speech to the team on TV from the hospital bed. He did his postgame press conference on TV in the hospital bed. But the one that I think just killed everybody with <laughs> Dino, Babers. Dino Babers looking up to the press box with the thumbs up and, and, and Hugh Freeze waving back at him, which somebody scored to the Titanic video. Like, could this ever happen in any other... There's no chance an NFL head coach would do that. There's no chance an NBA head coach would do that, right? This is an only-in-college-football moment.
1: No, that is a good observation. You know, for some reason, I don't know exactly why she tweeted out. I think Nicole Auerbach had t- tweeted or retweeted a Dino Babers from last year locker room speech after they won a game. And he is a phenomenal speaker, as is Hugh Freeze. And just the idea, I'm like, I wonder if Dino would have gone into, that, into there and given him a pep talk after that or anything like that, how that would have gone. Because it just it's just really bizarre. And look, I don't want it to seem like we're making – too much light of this I read Chris Lowe's report on apparently what his uh what Freeze was dealing with it was just bizarre to see the pictures and everything like that And I'm sure those memes are going to linger on for a long time right
0: yeah I don't want to make light of the health situation but I I think he even he would acknowledge and he knows that he was going to become a meme as soon as he did this he he said something after the fact to the you know to the effect of I think I think I'm going to become a trivia question also, by the way, in the post-game press conference that he did from his hospital bed, he's holding up his Coke Zero, which was clearly a product placement that he's contractually supposed to do. What's the plan going forward? Like, I don't know what the, how much more recovery he has to do here, but, you know, next week, this, so they were able to do this because it was a home game. What are they, they going to do if he has to go on the road? Uh, I don't know.
1: I don't know. We hope he has a speedier recovery and can get back on the sidelines soon.
0: Hopefully, next week. Bruce, now that we're back in season, it's time for us to bring back out a tradition that we haven't always remembered to uphold, but we're going to try to every week during the season, and that is shout outs.
1: You want me to go first, don't you? I
0: want you to go first.
1: Okay, that means you still aren't fully prepared and you're stalling. Okay, my shout out is to a California native who is 5 feet 8, 165 pounds, and now he's on scholarship because he just made arguably the biggest clutch kick of the first week. His name is Brandon Talton, and he played a key role in Nevada's comeback Friday night against Purdue. Uh, They were an 11-point underdog. They trailed by 17 points at halftime, and he booted the game-winning 56-yard field goal. As the clock expired, shout out to Brandon and also to the head coach who put him on scholarship, Jay Norvell. That is a big, big win for that program.
0: That was amazing. I watched that live. I was just like, there's no chance he's going to make a 56-yard field goal. And boom, he nailed it. Do you think he was going to be on scholarship anyway? Or was that he had to make that field goal to earn his scholarship?
1: That's a great question. I don't know if we'll ever get the answer (laughs) to it, but I think everybody's happy it's worked out this way. This kid gets to be a, um, get to be kind of a, a, a little bit of a legend in, in Nevada folklore for that. So,
0: Nevada, by the way, is going to go play at Oregon this week. So, see if they can pull off another big upset. So, my shout out, it's not that I wasn't prepared for it. I just wanted to save it and do it because it's going to be a prelude to a, a, some news we're going to drop on the podcast. So, my shout out is to our producer of the last two years, Nick Fink. He has been, this is his last episode, but he has done a phenomenal job for us the last two years ever since we went uh, independent with this podcast um, after he had been at Fox for several years. He has put up with, I mean, first of all, let's just admit we are two of the least production savvy people on earth. We have had so many instances where I either sent him the wrong file or forgot to send him a file. Or we forgot to record something we were supposed to record and by the time we realized it, it was, you know, we couldn't get back together. We weren't on the same schedule. So Nick has put up with a lot. Oh, also our constantly changing schedules. So we really just want to give him a shout out and really thank him for everything he's done for us the last two years.
1: Thank you, Nick. You made us sound
0: less stupid. (laughs) <laughs> and saved us from
1: ourselves time and again, including on this very own episode.
0: We have to keep him on our on good terms because he owns, he has in his possession so many embarrassing outtakes that would that would ruin our careers if they ever got out. So uh, that's why I'm doing this big, long, extended shout-out. No, we're really appreciative. And uh, so here's what you guys need to know. There's going to be some changes, some exciting changes, good changes coming to the Audible next week. You've probably noticed that... The Athletic has been launching a ton of college football podcasts recently. Our good pal Andy Staples now has the Andy Staples Show, which I have already been on, Um, and a dozen team-specific podcasts. Definitely want to listen to David Ubbins' Tennessee podcast that that came out after after the Georgia State loss the other day. So we are pleased that things have been worked out so that the Audible can become part of the Athletic's podcast network starting next week. First thing you're going to want to know, I'm sure, and let me just go ahead and answer it. Yes, the podcast will remain free. It will remain everywhere you currently get it. Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify. I think the only place it will no longer be is if you've been listening to it on the Audio Boom app. That was where uh, it's been hosted for the last two years. That will not be true going forward. But for the most part, wherever you listen to it now, you'll continue to listen to it. However, we do want you to subscribe to The Athletic if you haven't already. And so, out of the goodness of our hearts, Bruce and I are going to be doing a little extra mini-episode each week. So this one comes out on Mondays, either Wednesdays, I think Thursdays, we'll do our little bonus mini-episode, and that will be exclusively for subscribers of The Athletic. You will get that on The Athletic's podcast app. If you are currently an Athletic subscriber and are not familiar with it, Go on the app. There's a little tab at the bottom that says podcasts. And then you can sort it by sport or it may already be recommended to you. Um, And then once you do that, press follow and you will get all those bonus episodes straight to your feed. So that will begin with our September 9th episode. Anything to add? Uh, See you next time. (laughs) Okay. We did not get to mailbag emails this week because there was so much we needed to get to from week one. But you can send those too theaudiblepod at gmail.com. We'll see you next time. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to The Audible on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a five-star review while you're at it. It helps get the word out. Thanks to Trader Joe's for being our presenting sponsor. Our producer is Nick Fink. Our theme song is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octave. You can download their music on iTunes and Spotify. Follow me, Stu, at... SL Mandel on Twitter and Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB and subscribe to The Athletic if you haven't done so already. You can try it for free, seven-day free trial at theathletic.com slash freetrial. So come on, get over here ah, yeah oh, We'll talk about it for you